Um, welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm uh, Jill Rutter, Programme Director on Brexit, and it's very good to have you here this morning to talk about life after Brexit, uh, the UK in the WTO. So this is your opportunity to find out everything you always wanted to know about the WTO but were afraid to ask, and to help us all uh, understand much more about the WTO in an hour. I'm delighted to be joined by our deeply expert panel. I'm going to introduce them from, uh, from my far right. We have Nick Ashton Hart. Nick is the Geneva representative for the Digital Trade Network. Then Iana Dreyer, who's the editor of Borderlex uh, and a European trade policy specialist. Dr. Stephanie Rickard from the LSE, where she is professor of international trade. And last but by no means least, Bernadine Adkins, who's the head of EU Trade and Competition at Gowling, which is a law firm, and we're very, very delighted that Gowling have agreed to sponsor this event, partner with us on it. So what we're going to do, just to set off, is, uh, is we're going to ask each of them to give us about a five-minute intro to an aspect of what is going on at the WTO at the moment and a bit of what that means potentially for the UK's future role. Then we're going to have a bit of a conversation between ourselves, but we are very keen to have as many questions and comments from you in the audience. Remember, if you're a civil servant, that we are live streaming this. So just take that in mind when you <coughs> ask your questions and just think how you put it, uh, because we cannot edit it out later. She said. So let's get going. And without further ado, I'm going to ask Nick. Nick, so we hear a lot about um, the WTO at the moment, how it's sort of bogged down and things like that. But, yeah, you know, what's WTO doing at the moment? Nick. <laughs> Uh, in five minutes. Um, in five minutes. Yeah, well, good morning, everybody. It's great seeing a full house for trade anything in, in, the, in the UK. I'm still a little stunned. In the old days, you couldn't get arrested talking about trade in this country. Um, so there's, there's basically four things that the negotiators are busy with in sort of order of importance to them. The first is the reform agenda. Uh, about which you will hear much more later because there's many different proposals and they all change regularly and I don't follow that because I have enough with digital trade. Uh, so after reform, the next most uh, time consumptive thing is a fisheries agreement which is fundamentally on how to handle illegal fishing. Um, you would think that would be straightforward but it's not exactly because you have to define what illegal is. <coughs> in terms of fishing. Um, third is the e-commerce negotiations, which is a plurilateral uh, amongst 79 countries. Sorry, they, the reason I'm uncertain is because people keep adding themselves, which is a nice problem to have, um, uh, including all of the, the major powers, as well as uh, a large number of developing countries. And started with one African country. Now we have four out of 52, so there's still a ways to go there. Um, and those are, those are the, main, uh, the main subjects that are consuming negotiators' time. But that's <coughs> when, you, when you think about the fact that most missions are two or three people, um, to have you know, three major negotiations going on at the same time, as well as all the standing work of the WTO's um, committees, um, this is an enormous, uh, enormous load on those who are in Geneva, and you see a lot of uh, capital-based people coming in to share it. Um, the, the, the other sort of item up for, that, that's, that's taking up time, is whether or not to renew two moratoria that are politically linked. Uh, one is a moratorium on customs duties on electronic transmissions. If you're not already asleep with me just saying that. <coughs> um, and linked to that is an even more arcane moratorium, which is on non-violation, non-infringing uh, intellectual property complaints in the TRIPS context. Um, I won't even <laughs> try and explain what that actually is because we don't have that much time. Um, so on the e-commerce side, I'm in the room because I'm an advisor to a group of member states on their position in the, in the negotiations. Uh, that agreement covers basically it's 
sort of horizontally covering parts of the entire economy because uh, e-commerce is not what we think of e-commerce. It's not just buying things from a platform. It's anything uh, digitally enabled uh, and its impacts on trade. So discussions that are really important to, to the UK, um, are kind of across the board given how uh, we're the world's second largest services uh, exporter and something like 78% of of, uh, of those are digitally connected in some way. <coughs> so it's profoundly important for us, especially if we leave the, the single market. Um, the, the UK is, of course, in the room, but the EU uh, is the one who does all the talking for so all the member states. Nick, is that an area where you would expect, if you know, the EU wasn't representing the UK as it is now, that the UK would take a very distinctive line on e-commerce in the WTO? Is that one of the areas we might expect you know, the UK to be a, try to be a different sort of player to the positions just represented by the EU? Um, I su well, we, we would be talking. I mean, mm. so we would have an independent, <laughs> we, would, we would actually be speaking. I suspect a lot of the positions would be similar because a lot of the interests at that level mm. are similar. Um, we would probably take a somewhat greater emphasis on certain things over others vis-a-vis mm. -vis what the EU does. Um, so I, I think there would be there will be more diver, there would be perhaps more divergences as we get into very detailed negotiations mm. on some of the controversial areas, but I suspect in a lot of areas it, the, the 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 objectives would be relatively similar. And do you see the UK influencing the EU position? Will the EU position change if the UK isn't a voice in that sort of EU coordination that? predates the sort of EU representative speaking. Definitely, and the, the, um, a number of EU member states have said that the weakening of our voice because of what's happening has already changed the dynamic uh, and, and made things less sort of future oriented uh, and, and more conservative in the positions that are, that are being taken to the frustration of a number of our of our friends, you can probably imagine who some of those might be. Um, yeah. Interesting. So that's the sort of current agenda. So if you want to come back and do a deep dive on the fisheries agreement and things like that, maybe Nick's not quite so expert on what's going on in the room there. But uh, so that's what's going on in the WTO at the moment. But Iona, the WTO is a bit of a sort of looks from the outside to be a bit of a troubled organisation with big question marks about where is it, just as it looms much larger in our life with every talking about WTO rules being the way forward. Um, more question marks over the future of the WTO than probably there have been for any time in the past, uh, past decade or so. Indeed, I think, uh, I mean, the WTO to me is really falling victim to the big US-China rivalry that is playing out at the moment. Uh, what's happening right now on that US-China rivalry, this is a battle about Technology, control of future technology, who's the lead innovator? Uh, it's a battle about control of institutions, power. Uh, it's the backlash against the rise of an ultra-competitive emerging market uh, that, you know, whose prowess has actually led to some um, corners of the United States with a given electorate uh, to, to lose jobs and then vote for some certain people, uh, and for a more protectionist agenda. Um, generally, it looks, you know, it's, this is more the area of international relations than actually law or whatever, but it looks like we are facing the phenomenon of a global hegemon. Um, the United States no longer willing or able to, you know, stick its neck out to provide uh, pr public goods, such as a free and open and predictable uh, environment for, international, for global international trade. Uh, so I think this is the context, and this explains all of the more arca arcane sort of battles that are being uh, waged in the WTO uh, itself. So what is happening there, uh, well, first of all, the WTO ha as organization has stagnated for a while. Uh, ne most negotiations are actually stuck. The Doha round is stuck. Uh, you know, we don't even know if e-commerce was gonna, ever going to work out given the US-China relationship, uh, things like that. But um, so this is stuck. This means that the, 
when there are disputes brought to the very famous and strong dispute mm. settlement system of the WTO with two levels, a mm. panel level and appellate body level, uh, you know, at some point the appellate body had to judge on things where there, you know, the rules were very thin or not clear. Um, so it's, it's an overstretch. Uh, in that context then comes this battle uh, with the US but also other countries criticizing China for the way it subsidizes its industries, for stealing intellectual property, you know, uh, and, and te uh, for not for not being, you know, not respecting all the rules and declaring itself a developing country, which means it, uh, you know, it, it is basically, it carves itself out of some obligations, which, you know, a, a power that is able to come up with the next 5G uh, <laughs> technology, you shouldn't, uh, you know, respect. So all this is coming to a head, and what the US is doing right now is blocking the appointment of uh, new appellate body members. This is a seven judge, you can't call it judge or arbitrators, whatever, um, uh, body uh, um, with uh, these, these people sit there for four years, renewable terms, and now these terms are expiring and the United States is blocking the appointment of new people. So it's euthanizing <laughs> the system, basically, uh, and by December 10, uh, nobody is expecting a miracle. Uh, there will be only one pan, uh, panelist left, a Chinese man. So this is just not going to work anymore. Uh, the dispute settlement system will not die. There will be still the panel level, but obviously this means uh, reports will be less authoritative. Uh, and then it's going to be the beginning of the end for you know, strong rule enforcement. My reading of the double, uh, appellate body's achievements is that it has mainly tamed the behavior of the big powers. Mm. Uh, the biggest litigators in the system mm. have been the US and the EU consistently, very often against each other. Um, and China has come, but very late. And China joined the WTO in 2001. At the beginning, there was not much litigation, but now it's among the big powers also using it uh, and also losing cases. Uh, so for me, this is a big, big power taming exercise to the benefit with positive spillovers for all the others, for the smaller, um, because it stabilizes the system. Um, smaller countries can at some, sometimes, you know, sue a, a big power uh, to get hurt. Um, but what we're having now is trouble among the big powers, including power mm. <laughs> trouble among the sort of allied powers, even the EU the EU and the US. So, I mean, we can go into detail of what's going on. Uh, the appellate body crisis has, you know, really jolted uh, countries like Canada, uh, the EU itself, into a flurry of diplomatic activity to try to make proposals to get this appellate body reformed, uh, get rules uh, reformed, mainly to, to treat the China question on subsidies, etc. We can go into detail on, about this. But I think fundamentally we're in big trouble and into a system of, you know, we're weakening basically the, the rules. And a lot will happen increasingly outside the WTO, including dispute settlement, which the EU, for example, is already sort of taking out. Uh, not taking out, but it's preparing to settle disputes within its FTA frameworks. Uh, it's trying to set up a separate, I don't know if it's going to succeed, uh, a separate appellate mechanism uh, that would deal with WTO cases, but without, obviously, the US in the room uh, and things like that. So we're going to see, um, just a f for the moment, a further weakening of the system. So what this means for Britain, uh, I would say not being a hook, you know, this green man, but uh, this is more about being a master of, you know, some Asian martial art. <laughs> Very pliable, very introspective and able to, you know, defend its interests and build coalitions and strike where, surgically where it can. It's sort of the smaller, needs to be a smaller, agile player in this whole system. And I wonder if that work of thinking about it has really begun yet. Okay. I think that what, what's, what struck me indeed is the resounding silence of the UK in this whole thing. Uh, it's not because it's a WTO me uh, EU member that is not allowed to to express uh, itself uh, about these issues. You know, France does it, Germany does it. You can have, as a government, have views on the crisis. Okay, well, we'll come back to that. And if anyone from the government wants to challenge Iana's view that the UK is a bit quiet on that, maybe we're doing loads of things behind the scenes. Which, 
please feel let us know. Let's please know. feel free to uh, to intervene. So, Stephanie, one of the issues that Yana picked up was the difficulty that the WTO has in coping with China state-owned enterprises and things like that. So, you know, going to have a specific look at you know the e the WTO's subsidy regime, what the WTO is trying to do to make sure, presuming that there's relatively fair competition between countries. Exactly. Stephanie. Thank you. So subsidies are an increasingly political and important issue. Uh, the UK is currently bound by subsidy rules both at the EU level, the EU state aid rules, and the WTO subsidy rules. So the UK is bound by both of these sets of rules at the moment. So why do these international agreements include rules about subsidies? It's exactly as Jill suggested. Subsidies can distort trade. Subsidies could give an advantage to a domestic producer over a foreign producer. So international agreements that are designed to liberalize trade and reduce barriers to trade target subsidies. Because if they didn't, clever governments can and do say, OK, we'll cut tariffs, but then we'll offset that with subsidies. So Japan, during the TPP negotiations, said, sure, we'll cut our tariffs on pork. And then they turned around to their pork farmers and said, don't worry, we're just going to increase our subsidies massively to you. And you already hear that a little bit coming out of the UK government with regards to Scotland and the Scottish farmers. So subsidies are, in effect, a barrier to trade. And that's why they're regulated by these international agreements. So what are the differences between the WTO subsidy rules and the EU state aid rules? In general, the EU state aid rules are much stricter. The EU state aid rules typically say subsidies are illegal. Of course, there are a few exceptions, but in general, the EU says we don't want to see subsidies from our member states. So they're stricter, they're less permissive, they cover both goods and services, and importantly, there's much stronger enforcement of EU state aid rules. The European Commission is constantly monitoring uh, states' subsidies. They have a lot of power to investigate them. They're constantly on the watch out. They can ask member states to repay illegal subsidies and to repay illegal subsidies with interest. In contrast, the WTO subsidy rules are much more permissive. In general, the WTO so subsidies are okay with a few exceptions. So they're really focused on explicit subsidies that affect trade, like export subsidies. These are the ones they're very worried about. So the rules are more permissive, they only apply to goods, and they're very weakly enforced. There is no equivalent to the European Commission at the WTO. There is nobody constantly monitoring state subsidies. At the WTO level, it really takes another member to come to the WTO and complain about them, to file a dispute about them. So there's a lot of non-WTO compliant subsidies out there that are never getting litigated, that are never coming up in front of the WTO. So the WTO rules are more permissive and less rigorously enforced. So what does that mean for the UK after Brexit? If the UK leaves and is no longer beholden to EU state aid rules, in theory, the UK government would have more discretion, a greater ability to provide subsidies to domestic businesses. They would still be beholden to the WTO subsidy rules, but those are far more permissive. Having said that, the UK government historically hasn't seemed particularly interested in providing a lot of subsidies to businesses. In 2016, the UK government spent just 0.3% of GDP on subsidies. In contrast, other EU countries, beholden to the same EU state aid rules, spent nearly twice as much. So it doesn't look like the EU state aid rules were particularly binding on the United Kingdom, but they would have more leniency if they were no longer bound by them. Having said that, going forward and looking ahead, if there was a trade agreement between the UK and the EU, it's very likely that the EU would um, ask that there be rules about subsidies that would look very similar to the EU state aid rules. So going forward, we may be bound by the exact same rules that we are currently bound by in a slightly different format as part of an EU-UK trade agreement. So Stephanie, I've asked you about subsidies, but one of the things you also said you knew a lot about was procurement. And procurement is one of the areas where Certainly, you know, the UK government has felt itself very sort of bound in by EU procurement rules, particularly the sort of, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's train procurements, you know, a Swedish company winning train contracts rather than the Derbyshire company 
or whatever. So, you know, actually, is that going to make a big change? Will the UK government have much more freedom to determine its own procurement rules mm. when it's you know, no longer within the EU, you know, assuming sort of a very, very loose CETA-style agreement with the EU, which is what the government seems to be looking for now? In theory, yes. If, the, if we leave and the UK is no longer bound by the EU procurement rules, in theory, they will have more discretion mm. to award their contracts to whomever they mm. like. But it's much like subsidies. There are EU rules about procurement mm. and there are WTO rules about mm. procurement. The WTO rules are more permissive, but the UK again has seemed to overcomply with these EU rules. The EU rules can be interpreted in lots of different ways. There's many ways to get around EU rules by breaking up contracts into smaller pieces, mm. you know, saying it's in your mm. national interest. But the UK has really overcomplied with EU rules. They're very, very careful to follow the letter of the law. So even when they're not bound by these rules, it's unclear how interested they would be in always awarding contracts to domestic businesses. It may, of course, depend on the government of the day and their sort <laughs> of, of course, preferences yes. or whatever, but we can come, come back to that. And finally, just sort of sum it all up, um, Bundine, where do you, we've heard sort of various different things about what's yes. going on, where the WTO is going, some of the constraints or non-constraints posed by the WTO. So. Let's just sort of pull it together, <laughs> she said, yes, throws so big parcel, yes. parcel, parcel I, I, to you. I think, to I think on the, the tariffs issue, who would have thought we'd be looking at a tariff war? And that's mm. just so it's like back to the 70s. And I'm reminded of the, the, the line of John Maynard Keynes, the long term we're all dead. Um, and recently there was a report, a, an economic modelling report issued by the Centre for Policy Research by some US academics, basically did some economic modelling for the tariffs that the, the US imposed on China in 2018, and basically pointed out that all of those tariffs were passed down to the domestic consumer, to a, basically a net loss of US income of 1.3 billion per month throughout that period, and that the revenues that the US gained when, did not compensate for that loss of, of welfare for the domestic consumer. And that that, that harm was also felt equally for other countries such as China which were retaliating. So ultimately I would say hopefully these tariff wars someone will see some sense and realise they need to burn themselves out. Um, but in this new, this new shifting landscape where also we've got big digital, big data, how do we regulate big data? And as you know there's a great conversation, a global conversation going on with various reports coming out throughout the globe. Australia's issued a, a tome uh, looking at the possibilities. In the UK we've issued a very credible report called the Furman Report looking at those issues. So what should be our role uh, and, and the choices we have? So on the one hand, should we be siding more with the, the US position with regard to dispute resolution where the US does not like the judicial um, activism, the precedent setting of the appeals mechanism? Um, it prefers the looser arbitration system, which of course prefers a hard power situation, or should we be siding with the smaller, more medium-sized countries, which would prefer to see precedent setting? Also, one of, the, one of the, the reasons for the sclerosis, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, of the WTO in recent years is because it was insistence upon consensus building. Should we go more for the majority building, majority decision making? I think we've all heard this before. Um, which, which one should the, the UK adopt? And then where do we go on big digital? Um, I think it's fascinating that on Friday, um, uh, Marguerite Verstajer, who, as you know, she's now got the portfolio again for competition, but she's also got the digital single market. And she very much put her stall out and said, this is about the rule of law. We, we need to um, regulate to ensure that data is not misused and it does not compromise democracy. The US, the UK is taking a much more nuanced position as per, per the firm report, it seems, talking about an SRO, um, let's, let's self-regulate. Uh, and then contrast the US position that appears to be saying it's unfair you're picking on us because we're, we, we're US. Um, and so in that, in that context, I have no idea what this role should be and I defy anybody <laughs> else in this room to say what this role should be. Um, clearly it needs to be about soft power because we no longer have hard power. We are no longer a great colonial power. We have quite rightly repatriated all the assets to the indigenous populations of the countries we occupied. So we need to really stretch our intellectual capacity and put it to the best use we can in many respects, learn from other countries <coughs> such as Australia, Canada, Norway, who play very nicely uh, in this particular landscape. Um, and one comment I would make, I'm gonna put my neck out here, is to say I think we are gonna have extreme difficulty 
in concluding a free trade agreement, let alone a best-in-class free trade agreement, with the EU. So I think we really, in many ways, we need to double down in terms of what we will do in these multinational organisations such as the WTO. And the reason I'm saying that is if you look at the political declaration, if you look at the detail of it, it, it talks and talks and talks about a level playing field whereby you're going to, we're going to adopt the same rules and competition law, state aid, same uh, social and economic um, guarantees, um, same consumer protection rules. That is a level playing field, and that is the price, basically, for the rest of the EU saying, yes, please come and have free access to our markets, but we want to ensure that you are coming and having access to our markets on the same cost basis, for want of a better word, by reference to the same standards and values that we have. And the government, the current government, has clearly set out its stall saying, actually, no, our benefit from Brexit, that we see it, is through deregulation. So in that context, I struggle to see how we are going to be able to conclude a free trade agreement, let alone a, a best-in-class free trade agreement with the, the EU. So I'm just putting that out for, you know, Asriva to discuss. So in that context, what do we have to offer? Uh, and we do have a lot to offer, although I know our, our brand at the moment is probably feeling a little tarnished and compromised. Um, there, there is a lot that we do have to offer. And one, one obvious area is in around competition law policy. And here I think we've benefited greatly from having a hybrid system. We've got our U UK thinking, Anglo-Saxon thinking, litigious thinking, but we've also benefited from adopting the EU thinking, which is more of an administrative things. Uh, thinking, and it's interesting to watch over the years how the soft harmonisation of the EU system has been promulgated throughout the, globally, and so we've seen African states adopting more the EU system. China, although it's made it very much its own, has adopted the EU thinking as well. So too have we, and I expect that we will maintain that, that, that way of thinking. And it does mean, in many ways, we are a, a advanced ahead of the US in terms of early adoption of economic modelling, mm early pushing the boundaries in terms of how we examine markets, how we look at markets, how we oversee them, and also in the level of transparency and the level of oversight. I think we are world-beating, in effect, um, in terms of the, 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 the reputation that we have, the quality of our decisions, and the level of oversight. And one thing I would ask, and I know at the moment there's a conversation saying, at the moment we have the Competition Appeals Tribunal reviews the CMN on the basis of full merits basically complete oversight and there's people are saying oh but it means for big trials and that's not quite right let's just have it on the Wensbury reasonableness test I do think we would be poorer for that and the fact that every now and again the CMA has had a bit of a mauling before the cat has made it better and stronger and it basically says to everybody else listen regulators such as the CMA can withstand and get stronger from proper judicial oversight it's a lesson to the rest of the world that this is possible and it does mean that as I said we have led the way the UK has led the way in terms of the economic modeling which we then see the European Commission tends to adopt and I think we can continue to do so and the other area which I think is fascinating is state aid mm. and you know the question is are we going to adopt flip over the EU system or are we going to say ah no one cares anymore and I think there's a huge chance here uh, and I, as I understand the draft SI would flip over the, the current mm. state aid system that we have and adopt the, the thinking, the decisional practice. And I would say stick with it because it's actually quite extraordinary because normally the state aid rules are about stopping one, one country po poaching, uh, basically giving cash to distorting trade essentially. So it's an inter-country issue. Well, why don't we essentially, if we do adopt the EU state aid mm. rules, we will start policing ourselves Constitutionally, don't ask me how this is mm. going to work. The CMA telling the government, no, you can't give steel to uh, mm. subsidies to that steel factory, even though the headlines are telling you you must. We start to police ourselves. And so that, I think, is, is really sets a stake in the ground vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, is we want to play very, very nicely in this place and start to educate, suggest, encourage other, other states to take... Um, to, to behave in a likewise fashion. And I, and I think it's mm. subsidies really have a real distortive effect. Because tariffs, I think that game has largely been had, mm. which is why it's an aberration what we're currently seeing. It, and all this talk in the newspapers about tariffs here, there, and there. Mm. If you look at the tariff schedules, by and large, in Western nations, the tariffs are not the issue. Uh, which brings me on to the, the next point, and I'll very quickly finish then, is around what, what else do we have to offer the world? It is not about tariffs nowadays. It is about the non-tariff barriers. 
And for that, we need to really, really gear up and get in front of those standard-setting mm. organisations. And I think there's a strange irony, the moment of English independence, we're free from the shackles of the EU. I think what, where, what, where, where we go, it will become manifest in some back end of an industrial estate somewhere with a bunch of geeks sitting around a room, sharing technical information, fixing standards. But I do think it is imperative that Britain, the British industry, uh, either industry or, or, or the government, gets before and starts to work in a collaborative fashion in front of those standard-setting organisations. Because if you have a, a system, a procedure, and innovation that reads onto those standards, that recognises those standards, you are golden. But you are lost if you don't have those standards recognising that particular form of innovation. And once you get that, you know, multilateral lateral recognition, you're away. So I think it's absolutely imperative that we recognise we're good at collaborating, despite, you know, our, our, at some level, our need for British exceptionism. If you talk to people on the ground, businesses, what will you most miss most about the EU? It's access to Horizon 2020. It's access to the joint ventures, because we did very well out of those joint ventures. You know, naturally, as a country, how we are, how we think, day in, day out, we're good at collaboration, and that's something we should celebrate and work on and focus on and invest in, because uh, I think that is absolutely very important. And the last point I want to make is about transparency, and I'm reminded of the, the, the line from Lampedusa the Leopard, everything must change for it to be the same. We really need, as a country, to start being transparent. And it's a massive lesson, I think, the EU learnt with TTIP. Mm. They were not transparent as to what they were planning to do with America. Mm. And, of course, it went massive, in, certainly in Belgium, on Facebook, about this is awful, this is mm. terrible, and the whole thing crashed and died. They learned a huge lesson. I mean, you contrast mm. the transparency we've seen with the EU mandate, how it's been negotiating with the UK, and we still have, there's still a big secret as to what the big reveal will happen at some point as to where we're going. We need to be very, very transparent, very open, so business can have access to that level of data, that level of understanding, know who to go to talk to when a free trade agreement is being discussed or not, in order to be able to talk to government, so the government can understand the position. So transparency, I think, is the key to, to us moving forward uh, in this new environment. Thanks, President. Nick's very keen to come in on, uh, I think, your penultimate point. Nick? Well, a couple of them. I, I mean, I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate, but I actually kind of think this way. I, I think there will be a deal on reform. I just don't think it will be very much reform. I think mm. there will be appellate body judges, mm. but it will be a missed opportunity to reform beyond that um, for lots of reasons, which I'll, I'd get in trouble if I said. Um, <laughs> But uh, it be simply because it's in the interest of the big powers to have some intermediary between them in their conflicts on trade, um, because the other ways to solve it are all more risky uh, in every way. And so I think they will find a landing zone that will get appellate body judges back, because, because their interests will weigh out in the end. Um, but uh, the other thing I would say is, uh, on the e-commerce side, uh, there really is a lot of upside. That agreement is moving along uh, faster than I would have imagined, and I'm somewhat optimistic on the subject, as you might guess. Um, I, I, think there will be, I think there will be an agreement, and it will be quite broad, and it probably won't take more than about the rest of 2020 uh, to get to at the, at the pace they're going. But I also don't think... Um, I think the UK does have a couple of advantages as a solo member that aren't that aren't considered enough. Yes, we, are not, we may or may not have as much influence in aggregate overall as an independent member, but we are the world's second largest services economy, and we are the capital of fintech, which is going to be enormously resource creating, but also enormously transforming. Um, and we have already been doing agreements in fintech, like the fintech bridges uh, that we have. We have eight agreements like that, even as a member of the EU now. Um, and so I do think, you know, economic, you know, where you are in the league tables in certain areas in the WTO does really count. And the fact that we are the second largest services uh, exporter does give us an opportunity to really influence the rules that others adopt because they want to be a part of that, of, of our value chains, and we want to be a part of theirs. And there, there, there really is room for innovation in services uh, in agreements, honestly. Um, this is sort of the untapped, uh, one of the major untapped areas in, in trade negotiating. That's really interesting. So there's lots and lots of themes have come out there. So let's go to some questions, then we can pick up some other themes. Hopefully some people want to ask some questions. So Georgie, David there. I'll take them back to three. If there are back to three, if not, we can just probably get David to ask about 400 questions. No, <laughs> um, Tell us, David, th who Thank you, Jill. Are. David Hennig, uh, uh, 
UK Director, European Centre International Political Economy. Brit I'm just going back to the question, Britain's role in the WTO after Brexit. I can I put it to the panel that actually every country's role in the, w in the WTO is the same, which is to broadly su support, it in th support it in theory while pursuing their own interests, <laughs> and that every, co every country is you know, also working outside the WTO to put it in its own interests. Now, the real problem with the WTO is, as yet, we don't know what our own interests are rather than the rather than the WTO, but I think that Nick is on to the main point, which is services, which is that you know, what would be in our best interest is to very quickly wrap up our agricultural negotiations for our new schedules at the WTO and really encourage services and stop you know, pretending we're going to be this, a great leader, but focus on specific areas, and I think both services in general and specifically with, uh, with individual deals on services is the, is the most obvious way forward for the UK. Oh, right. I'm not sure that was very much of a question, but well, that's it was a fine. question to Nick. I'll be uh, and the whole but, panel will be interested in... No, but I'm just going through um, prioritisation. I mean, what should the UK be prioritising as a sort of, you know, neophyte little, uh, little WTO on its own or whatever? Where are the big sort of areas we should prioritise? Stephanie. Um, so I think that this is an important point. The UK, it's much easier for the UK to affect change in the EU. So the UK effectively lobbied for changes to the state aid rules in 2014, because they were negotiating with 27 other states. At the WTO, it's still run by consensus. There are 164 member states. All of them have equal power in theory. Any of them can veto an agreement. So we constantly see India gumming up the negotiations and saying, we're not gonna to agree to anything until you take subsidies off the table. So the WTO is a different beast. It's much, much more difficult to affect any change, to be any sort of leader there, where you have 164 countries around the table, all promoting their own interest. When it comes to subsidies, the UK has to figure out what their interest is. You may want to subsidize your businesses, but if you do it, China does it, the US does it. And so you have big economies with the big resources behind them and non-democracies where it may be much more acceptable to say, we're gonna invest 15% of our GDP in subsidies for businesses rather than in healthcare or social spending. So you're right, the UK needs to get their own clarity about what they want when it comes to things like subsidies at the WTO. Yana. I very much agree with the view that services is the way forward for Britain. Uh, it, it is the second largest service exporter in the world uh, after the United States. Um, I think it's 6% of world exports and services. Um, there, however, a few sort of caveats from a more rea rea realistic perspective. First of all, um, the UK is more of an exporter than an importer, so it is more demandeur. So what does it offer in returns? The, 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 the problem with services trade negotiations has been that we are in a mercantilist system with, with states bargaining for an advantage against the other and with power relationships. For services, this doesn't work. You, you would need to have a very more collaborative environment uh, smooth rules um, for this and, and it's just harder to get and we've just talked about what's going on in the international world we might see a very you know if this continues uh, this world of tension it's going to potentially be very disruptive I don't like to say damaging but very disruptive for a whole host of supply chains especially as services is increasingly all about digital uh, everything is digitalizing uh, where are we going to go there if there is certainly a sort of a cold war, a barrier between the US and China on, on the tech front? If we, we, we we're separating out, what are we going to do? And then there is still the question of what's going to be the relationship with the EU single market on services, because the, you know the, the major export destination for our services are uh, um, still the, the EU. Um, a lot of the rules the UK has are single market inspired, the single market itself has been shaped a lot by Britain. What happens after that? Obviously, and, and once, and also the trading partners will ask, what's your relationship with the EU single market going forward before we start talking about a trade agreement? And then on, on negotiating on trade and services, in the, there was an attempt. There was an attempt in, not in the WTO, because it didn't work within the WTO, but I don't know if some of you remember TISA, this sort of 23, 24 country, uh, plurilateral agreement that tried to base, uh, that created an agreement in services more about 
rule harmonizing, rule making, rather than you know opening up market. It would have opened some market just by the fact that rules are clear and the same for everyone. Uh, but Tisa died the day after the U.S. election in November 2016. So when you have a leading superpower, which is also a services superpower, but it's also actually not ready itself to open up its own services market anymore, um, uh, and it's not really interested in leading in that, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's going to be, it will need a lot of hard thinking about how and what you're going to pursue it. And I think this is really one of the big tasks ahead for Britain, but it's, it's not going to be easy. So Nick, big UK interest in services, but also, I mean, we've seen even in the EU that sort of completing the single market in services is hugely harder than making progress on goods in the EU. So, yeah. Um, well, I would just say, that. you know, it's true the WTO decides things by consensus. However, it's not operating that way now. The reason there's an e-commerce negotiation mm -hmm. is because 70-odd countries said, we're going to do our own thing. Uh, an even bigger group has done, is doing the same thing in, in micro and small and medium-sized enterprises and investment facilitation. So deals can be done between a critical mass of countries in the WTO, and that's what's, I think, going so to happen. So both the US and China in the e-commerce negotiation. They are, and they're both demanders. And India and, not putting... And India's not, and too bad. And that, that's too bad for India, but the reality is the rules, if 79 countries um, come up with an agreement and it contains all of the major economies, mm. India is going to be a rule taker sooner or later. They're going to end up taking the rules, and, and that's so too bad for them. So do you think that's a new pattern, that actually you find the sort of, you know, consenting, Get a critical mass consenting member states and whatever, and then start off and don't... I still need to see a plurilateral agreement materialize. Okay. I mean, the, the only, the one agreement that works is the IT International mm. Trade Agreement, which is tar tariffs, uh, uh, technological agreement, tariffs in electronics. They managed to, Twice. the WTO mm. managed to upgrade it. It's limited. The others, I mean, I don't want to play Cassandra. Mm. I really hope <laughs> that this e-commerce thing is yeah. going to, I mean, you really want it as, you know, mm. uh, but I really want to see, the moment it happens, we, we talk again, but I have e environmental goods agreement, a plurilateral agreement has not materialized. TISA did not work. Oh. Uh, if you don't have a real buy-in by the great powers, uh, it's not going to be easy. And I see e-commerce really facing a real difficulty further down the road on issues like data, uh, data flows, etc. when you have both China and the US in the room. So we have a bit of pessimism and the EU in the bit of skepticism over here. So I'm just going to ask you two: Where are you on this uh, sliding scale of skepticism and skepticism and optimism? The, the beauty of the WTO is that it's a multilateral agreement. Mm. The plurilateral agreements break that system. So there is a plurilateral agreement on government procurement, but not all member states mm. have signed on to it. And so imagine a world where you say, "Okay, we're going to have a plur mm. plurilateral agreement on subsidies." So we agree not to subsidize our domestic mm. business, but India is out there providing huge mm. amounts of money to their domestic business. Is that a world that we want to be in? Is that, is that a positive development mm. in the multilateral trading agreements? I'm not sure. I, I think the beauty of the WTO mm. is that everybody was at the table, everybody was agreeing mm. the rules. We have seen mm. that breakdown because of politics, because it's difficult to get agreement once you move beyond tariffs to these behind mm. the border things like mm. subsidies that are more politically uh, difficult, it's much harder to get agreement. But I don't know if the movement towards small little groups mm. agreeing is, is a positive thing necessarily. Bernadine, small groups, good, I, bad? I think, I think we'd be naive. I think we're thinking, oh, we do, we're great at services, let's just go for it. It's yeah. like, hang on, market access is not a right. <laughs> you know, so I, I think what, while we we have this difficulty being realistic, maybe we are looking at bilateral arrangements and having to have those conversations. And I do I do think there's a little bit of naivety that we have in in the UK mm. about that. And we, we witnessed it with Theresa May. The first thing she did mm. after the referendum was go and see to India to Modi and say hello, you know, let's in sort of thing. And he said, how about some visas, you know, mode four? And that was a bit of a shock. So I I think we need to start to see others as as. They see us, we need to start listening, because we think, oh, India, marvellous, we gave them the railway, we gave them civilization, the common law, 
democracy, they should be so grateful. They have a very different memory <laughs> of occupation. So I, I think, you know, rather than us be told in, in the context of a trade negotiation, you know, this is what we want mm. from you, I think we should actually start to think about how we are viewed and query, and maybe this is a controversial thing to say, should we start thinking about things like soft soft reparations, mm. such as, you know, various scripts or whatever who are languishing in dust mm. at the back end of the, the British Library, give them back. Make some apologies, you know, that, that just because I, if I, I think if we yeah. don't do that and start to acknowledge that, we're going to be made to do that in the context of these bilaterals. So I think we need to be quite realistic about that. That yeah. said, looking to you know, other areas such as competition law, query whether we should think about the soft harmonisation. So if, if we are in this, this impasse yeah. with respect to getting agreement, what about doing guidelines, the softer stuff? And some of it will be quite basic, but some countries need that basic. And then to start to basically name and, sh not name and shame, but basically everybody wants to be seen to be a responsible citizen. And we've seen that with China and the merge control rules. They want to be seen to be a responsible international citizen. So query whether we shouldn't start that gentle, soft harmonisation approach. Okay. I don't think we've heard of soft harmonisation before at the IMG, so that's a very interesting addition to our lexicon. More questions? Yeah, oh, good, loads of questions now. So we go for three. So um, Hayden, if you can go right to the back row. And then Georgie, just in front of you. Yeah. Thanks. So, Hi, Richard. Richard Price from DIT. Uh, Stephanie, I think, said uh, that uh, you know, it's, there, there, there are disadvantages in uh, going for uh, plurilaterals as opposed to multilaterals. I think we can all see, you know, it's pretty clear that multilateral agreements are in many, you know, lots of respects first best, but they're also, as we've heard, slow, difficult to achieve, quite cumbersome. Uh, they just take a long time. I mean, how, how would the panel think about um, judging the merits of going a plurilateral route or a multilateral route uh, and you know, in, in things like services agreements. And are there particular uh, issues where one is clearly preferable to the other? Okay, so hold those thoughts and we'll go to Franz Kramer. Well, probably one of the least informed people in the room, but the, I, I, I just wonder, the, the, uh, the, the, the Trumpian attack on Huawei seemed to me to signal a, a, a very fundamental change in um, uh, any potential to get WTO agreements in the area of, 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 of online and digital services. It seemed to signal that that was going to turn into a major battle. So uh, are, are you genuinely saying that's not having any impact on the e-commerce negotiations? Um, and it would be helpful just to try and understand that because it looks to me as though it's fundamental. Could I just ask a minor question on that? I mean, like a lot of people, I'm very worried about the impact of WTO rules of origins on small businesses, say across the Northern Ireland border, a, a stationers who imports 100 different items a week from down in the south because that's where the only warehouse is and similar things across the sort of Dover border. But, uh, um, and do we have any flexibility to deal with rules of origin? Is there anywhere on the agenda? Is there anything that is focusing on the burdens on small businesses? Okay, let's, uh, I'm going to, uh, I'll come to other questions. Let's, let's take, Nick, can you pick up Huawei for us? Okay, this is, a, it, this, is an interesting, this is an interesting case study. So I I've listened to the negotiators talk about this area because there are a number of proposals that have been made can't remember which ones are public or not, related to IT products containing encryption. And the irony here is when you, when you the, the objective on all sides is actually the same, is to have rules related to that, that nobody actually wants, for example, market access to be predicated on access to source code. None of the big powers want that. They all think that's a bad idea. It's only a question of what, what are the exceptions that allow you to have the access that you need. And that's actually what the discussion is about related to data flows and several other areas. And the interesting thing is how similar the needs actually are at that level on predictability of access. And I actually think those areas in terms of rules will be less difficult to, to come to an agreement on because the exceptions systems are so well understood and 
the needs for access and under con certain conditions are seen similarly, even if different parties might say one or the other country wants to use the exception in a much broader way than the other does. <coughs> um, but they both need the same predictability and they both want the same basic rule. Um, so I, yes, it's a real issue, um, but it plays out differently in this context than in the narrative that you, that you hear. Um, so, so if there was an interesting sort of, so if there was an e-commerce agreement, we got to that, you know, but the U.S. said, don't trust these people, I'm not going to let them do business in the U.S. or whatever, you know, that would be perfectly compatible with the e-commerce agreement? Well, no, it, you would have to have grounds for the measures that you're taking, and the, 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 what they're now playing, mm. gaming through mm. is, in the negotiations is, under what grounds can you demand access to source code or access mm. to, uh, to break mm. encryption? And are those do the scenarios I have in mm. mind work within the rules that are being discussed? And do the, does my idea of using those rules gel with everybody else's? Um, if you want to see an example of the first serious discussion of that question, the last issue, there is an openly available proposal on the WTO website contributed by Canada on how states may use personal information that they gain access to. And uh, it's well worth reading because it's literally saying that no state may demand access to data and use it to persecute their own nationals. Let's and I'm looking forward to being in the room for that discussion. So, so, <laughs> so, so I don't know if anyone, I want to go to Susan's second point about the possible exemptions for small businesses. How about one of our lawyers, Bernadine? Well, Ursula, who, who deals with, 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 with customs and things, she, she might kill me for saying this. <laughs> but practically speaking, there's, again, quite a bit of economic thinking. Mm. Often those rules of origin are so cumbersome, some people, some businesses ignore them. Because actually what really but matters are WTO where you... rules of origin. Yeah. These are free... Okay. free. The, the, the thing is with the WTO, you don't have rules of origin. You just take yeah, these as are, it is. It, it's yeah, the free point. trade agreement. It's, it's a preferential point. rules of origin. So the Irish border rules of origin mm. question would be about an FTA with the mm. EU. Sorry. Yeah. So, so, and so then you're talking. Yeah, so you, you basically have a spaghetti yeah. bowl of bilateral agreements and you have to work out you know, what, what, you know, do basically where does this good come from or what parts of the good, etc. All of which is cumbersome, costly, etc., etc. So often companies ignore it because of the cost of so doing and actually we just want to procure the good from... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, act and so that is, too. you know, perfectly... I mean, as I said, Ursula must be screaming at me now inside um, because obviously we spend, you know, some companies spend a lot of time working out working out where's the best regime to go for. But a lot of people, it's a conversation I had in the middle of Warwick Market, coffee, basically buys coffee beans. I said, how are you going to manage? He says, I ignore it. I've got, you know, somebody else is in the mm. coffee market, they drive themselves insane, it's a waste of time and money, trying to work it out, I procure the goods from where I want to procure them, I lower my, I focus on costs elsewhere. So that is just one practical solution. That's why you get quite low utilisation rates sometimes of preferential yes. trade agreements when actually it's just too much hassle to bother to, yeah. bother to uh, yeah. take advantage of the preferences that you've negotiated. So Richard asked us a sort of... Uh, Question, which is the chief economist at the Department for International Trade, so this is your chance to influence DIT's thinking here by giving him a framework to think through when is multilateral good, when do you opt for the sort of slightly second best plurilateral, Stephanie? Uh, so Richard, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you haven't already thought of, but of course, the if you can't get everybody around the table mm. and agree, then you need to focus on the people that your domestic businesses are most competitive with, right? So Namibia is not sending subsidized goods to the UK that's competing with domestic producers. Mm. But the big beasts are often the ones that are most intransigent because they have their own politics, mm. right? They're getting pushed by their businesses to have subsidies, to get market access to the UK. But really the focus uh, for you and your, mm. your department should be on the big competitors that we face. And often these competitors are the ones that are most mm. geographically close to us. But I do mm. want to just flag, when you're negotiating with a non-democracy, it's much more difficult. China can afford to put way more of their money into business subsidies because they're not coming under pressure to have funding for the NHS or 
you know, police. So I would focus on the big competitors for the United Kingdom's producers. Yana. Yeah, I would, I would concur with that. I mean, in an ideal world of, of, of a pure trade economist, we would have multilateral free trade. Uh, on everything uh, and globally uh, this is the optimal situation that's not how it works we all know um, and especially when, when you focus on service I think it's not only the competitive in the, in the, in the subsidies it's services for example these services are a regulated area so you need to talk to partners whom you trust whose, whose stake you, you trust whose regulations you trust there must be mutual trust in the system. Um, and a services trade, despite all the globalization that's been going on, uh, the globalization has been going hand in hand with regionalization of trade and interestingly enough also in services. So our neighbors are either the Atlantic Ocean or the EU27. Um, that's, that's a big continued big question mark here. Mm. Next, so why did you end up plurilateral on this e-commerce? Did you have a go at multilateral and just hit the brick wall? Well, there was a <laughs> since since the 90s, there has been an e-commerce work program, hmm. and that e-commerce work program has been notable for doing not very much other than renewing the moratorium on customs duties on electronic transmissions. Hmm. And so, a very broad group of countries said, "That's enough. We're going to we're going to see where we can go." Um, and I, I think to Richard's point, I think you, 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 you can do both. It's, it's not widely appreciated, but the, one of the great benefits of the Geneva trade community is it's all there. And it's a great place to go and create a common understanding of a shared issue. Really, there's no better place in the world to do that. And so you kind of have to do both. We would have to have an, a, an innovative approach to services that explains why liberalization is good, even though we export more than we import, why we can do arrangements with countries that want to, want to export more services to us and make those part of the value chains through which we export and the like. I think we have to win an argument for why, especially in smaller economies, there is a value in following our regulatory model. In fintech, there's an obvious argument to make because uh, one billion people in the world do not have access to financial services, and those people could be served through mobile money much more likely than they are through, through standard banking, for example. So I think you have, to, you have to try and win the argument multilaterally, and even if you have to pursue, a, at the same time, um, plurilateral or, or bilateral deals on the same subject, that's okay. Maybe that's a stepping stone to broadening the arrangement to, to all countries. Okay, I'm going to put Bernadine on hold, and let's just take the final question. So these last three down here. So Hayden, if you can go there. and. Georgie there, and then person in the middle, we will come to you. Yeah, no, uh, lady there, yeah. Hi, uh, my name's Olivia Roll from GK Strategy. Um, question mostly for Nick. Could you talk a bit more about how the e-commerce moratorium might play out after it expires, I think, in December this year, given the review that's been requested by India and South Africa, I think? Okay, take that one. And then Robert, and then if you just pass the microphone forward, yeah. Oh. Um, Robert Morland, I'm a former member of the European Parliament. Um, my question is simply one word, agriculture. Um, and the, uh, against the background that historically the United Kingdom has been at the low end of prices in, and also um, uh, I think one has to say it's been a blockage on certain trade agreements at the WTO level in the past. Can you comment? Okay, and last question in the middle. There. Hi, uh, Larry Whitty, House of Lords. Um, I preface this by saying personally I am very much in favour of obeying multilateral rules, but uh, <laughs> there are politicians around who aren't. Uh, my question is that uh, by and large, Whitehall, if not politicians, have been pretty respectful of EU rules uh, because the EU has powers of direct enforcement. From what you're saying, the history of the WTO has been relatively weak, and with the present standoff over the appellate body, it promises to be weaker. So what could a government get away with? Uh, <laughs> for example, the, the provisional tariffs in part reflect, I mean, they're pretty illogical, but they, they do reflect the interests of particular groups. And I see this morning the government are prepared to change them for the road haulage industry, uh, rightly so in my view. But both tariffs and non-tariff barriers can be used in a way to distort trade. Uh, 
How long would it take for the WTO to come down like a ton of bricks uh, on a putative UK <laughs> government? Okay, I'm not sure that's the most positive note to end <laughs> on. Anyway, okay, so Nick, pick up the question very quickly on the e-commerce moratorium. Okay, so the moratorium, uh, for the first thing is, is that the moratorium has been made permanent in agreements between bi bilaterally and uh, regionally um, for many countries, dozens of them. So even if the moratorium expires tomorrow, many countries will not be able to impose it or they would only be able to start imposing duties on intangibles for some but not all parties. The, the reason why the moratorium is so important is it because it was fundamentally an agreement that in, the new, in an area of the economy which was created post the foundation of the WTO, the starting place was zero tariffs. It's basically, okay, we're, we're going to do this right this time. So if those countries which oppose it are successful in it not being renewed, it sends a terrible signal that we're going to be able to go from zero tariff somewhere to something more than that, which is the opposite of the entire purpose of the trading system. And I don't think this actually gets discussed enough. I think that's, that at a conceptual level, it, you can imagine certain leaders in the world seizing on this and saying, this is why this institution doesn't work for us anymore. Now they're after our champions and they're after taxing us. So I think. That, that is the, the, the importance that the moratorium has, um, and I'm still somewhat hopeful that we will see it renewed, but um, well, let, it, it's, it's, it, yeah. it needs more, that, that's something that needs more airing, I think, than it gets. Okay, well let's go to the other end, the area where there's still lots of tariffs in play and lots of subsidies, stuff like that, and uh, maybe Stephanie, um, Robert's point about, you know, we haven't said anything about agriculture. Where's agriculture going in the WTO and what might the UK, UK want to do? Will the UK get into problems? You mentioned Scottish beef farmers uh, very tantalisingly. Um, <laughs> because obviously the CAP is the one area where the EU is actually very permissive on really quite big mm -hmm. subsidies. Um, when we move out, I don't think the UK has that much intention to pay farmers much more, but obviously devolved governments might or whatever. So actually, are we going to be constrained on what we can do in agriculture? Subsidy, where should, where's WTO going on agriculture? Yeah, agriculture is really messy. You, you put your finger on the hard points. Um, I think that subsidies won't be as much of an issue as quotas. So dividing up the EU quotas, that's going to be the sticking point. So again, another non-tariff barrier quotas, mm -hmm. how much beef can get mm -hmm. imported or exported, that's going to be the sticking mm -hmm. issue. But can I just come yeah. to uh, Larry's point yeah. really quick? Yeah. Larry, you're absolutely right. The EU enforcement is much stricter than the WTO mm -hmm. enforcement. WTO enforcement mm -hmm. is much, much weaker. So let's say the UK decides to break WTO rules. There's two possibilities. One, another mm -hmm. state, say the US, mm -hmm. India, China, mm -hmm. brings a dispute against the UK at the WTO. That will take a year to get litigated. But there's a second strategy. Mm -hmm. Let's say the US sees the UK breaking mm. rules at the WTO, they can impose countervailing duties. So they could legally, under WTO rules, impose tariffs mm. on UK goods into the US. And that's the one that's more troublesome, right? That's where it's not enforcement mm. by the WTO, it's enforcement by member states. You're illegally mm. subsidizing your beef, mm. it's not coming into the US market. Is there any risk we illegally subsidize our beef? I'm just interested. Uh, in it is not for me farmers. to say, uh, especially in a room full of but civil how, servants. How near are we to sort of, you know? Sort of I mean, this is the, the rhetoric that we're yeah. hearing, you know, okay, we're going to let all foreign beef come into the yeah. UK tariff free. Don't worry, farmers, we'll subsidize you to make sure you're not any worse off. I think we're imposing quite big tariffs at the moment under the provisional, yes. provisional yes. schedule, aren't we? But obviously, we're, and if we bail out lots of businesses, because we know that uh, there's Operation Kingfisher lurking around, which is. Uh, emergency help to businesses, whatever. Would anyone take us to the WTO over that? It's not clear. I've spoken to some people in the trade remedies yeah. uh, department yeah. here in the UK, and they do think that member states are sitting there poised watching us. But there is an exception, which yeah. we've seen Trump use, mm. that there's national emergency, there's national security yeah. issues. Potentially, we use that loophole mm. in the WTO rules and say, look, this is an unprecedented national situation, yeah. national emergency. Yeah. We are in an unprecedented economic situation. We need to bail out our businesses because of Brexit. So maybe I could see us going down that path. And then we have at least a fig leaf of cover for our actions. Bernadine, agriculture. I have, I have to confess I, that, that is more, I think, a quasi-political right. question than a quasi you know, hard right, okay. question. 
So I, I don't really want to comment okay. on my Okay, yeah, well. agriculture. Maybe two cents on yeah. some subtopic yeah. because it's huge. Uh, what, what can the UK get away with? I mean, what I understand from the uh, tariff schedule is a lot in, the, in uh, where the ex, you know the high tariffs are in quotas is in, in the agriculture sector. A lot of it in these sectors where the UK has been seeking a role to roll over free trade agreements, EPAs, etc. So, you know, if if you want to do something that annoys people, you're trying to get something from sort of a. Of you know roll over an EU free trade agreement, which is very important to set precedence and, and to maintain trade. It's not important, you know, an agreement with you know uh, the Pacific countries that has been done isn't commercially important. It's important for the sugar sector, for sugar importers, and it's important in terms of you know setting precedence so that you go to other bigger countries and tell them we we did this. Please do that with us. So that that's the pressure, and then it depends on how quickly the UK wants to have its tariff schedules certified in the World Trade Organization, uh, and if if all whatever it nasty it does, if it annoys big countries such as the US or Australia, with whom we're trying to negotiate a free trade agreement, if you mm -hmm. are going to annoy them, um, that's you know your you know it's more a cost benefit analysis. How much you want to annoy? certain people of whom you want an advantage or not. But so then litigation, it can take three years, you can go away with a lot. So is there any risk that the US takes us to the WTO over animal welfare standards and our bans on things like hormone-treated beef, which they argue is you know, perfectly safe and therefore should not be banned? We've already got a judgment, I think, haven't they, against the EU, which the EU is ignoring. There was the Z Hormone Beef. The EU has not ignored it. It has offered compensation in the right. form of a quota for non-hormone-treated yeah. beef. Uh, and that quota was actually very recently renegotiated. Right. Um, uh, so it depends. I'm not in the know of what yeah. the what, what the Just, discussions are yeah. here, but it's clear that the U.S. will ask. I mean, there there is a precedent with Switzerland. Yeah. Switzerland has agreed to abide by uh, the WTO yeah. ruling, and there's a system with the EU by which because yeah. Switzerland is part of the single market in, yeah. in food veterinary yeah. area, they managed to find a system yeah. whereby U.S. Yeah. meat does not come into the EU via Switzerland. Yeah. But anyway, just a, we'll see. Whether, just a question whether we'll be picked off. Just a final <laughs> point, Larry's point on uh, just bringing the others on, uh, on uh, you know, how quick the UK as rule breaker, uh, just a note on a positive end. Yeah, but I think rule breaker is not a good look for We need to be concerned to exercise a new soft power, and, and for that we need to be yeah. on the side of... And take them all high. And ground. just quickly, Bernadine, the final question, then we'll just sum it up because I'm slightly over time, is uh, how helpful is the WTO? Some people have said if the EU decides to treat us like a third country and basically imposes more checks and are sort of perfectly compliant until uh, October 31st, animals and stuff like that going in, and doesn't sort of just apply the 2% mm. checks they apply to New Zealand, yeah. but sort of ramp it up, that we could actually seek remedies at the WTO if the EU started acting unreasonably. <coughs> It, yeah, can the UK use WTO rules to try and sort of improve its access to EU markets in a no-deal situation? Yeah, I think mean, we'll need to distinguish. We would have to take the emotive, emotiveness yeah. out of it because we will be a third country. This, it's, you know, how often one has to tell yeah. people we will be a third country, you know, and people don't seem to get that. So anything, obviously, it's very unfair, disgraceful. It's no, we've left. It's a completely different regime. We have to accept the consequences of that. So I think we need to distinguish, is there a genuine issue there? Yeah. Um, and question as to how quickly we would get redress, relief from the WTO. We'd much be better off having a negotiation and a discussion and concluding some form of arrangement with the EU. Okay, I'm going to draw it to the court there, because slightly over time, and thank you all very much for, for waiting. I think what we've revealed today is that we have skated over a range of issues, and there are a huge number of really, really interesting issues that perhaps we haven't focused on in the UK as much as we might have done, but we'll have to focus on when we can get our sort of mind beyond thinking, you know, can we get a backstop renegotiating the next three weeks uh, um, or not, which seems to be the current preoccupation because actually there are huge big issues that we need to address that will determine the future of the economy and our role in the international trading system. So could I just ask you to thank our panel?
Thank you.